Hey, this is Nick DiMatteo from Music Is Not A Genre. I just wanted to take a minute to talk to you about the service I use to record and distribute my podcasts. If you haven't heard about Anchor, let me tell you from experience, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Here's why. It's free. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. So please take a moment out. If you are planning to create, record, and distribute podcasts, take a look at Anchor. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Hey, I'm Nick DiMatteo, and welcome to video number 87 and audio season four, episode 28 of Music Is Not A Genre. Thank you, as always, for watching and listening. Don't forget you can support this podcast on patreon.com slash musicisnotagenre. The audio version is at anchor.fm slash musicisnotagenre from where it is distributed everywhere. Uh, my public hub is youtube.com slash nickdimatteo, and you can see almost everything there. And as I mentioned last week, at nickdimatteo.com, if you go to nickdimatteo.com slash podcast, you will see the developing page of the home of Music Is Not A Genre, where you can find everything about this podcast. Keep checking it. You'll see me adding things each week. Let's get to the topic this week. We are in book talk number two, official book talk number two. Yes, this is the third book I've discussed, but it is the second episode dedicated solely to talking about a book. And the topic is Major Labels, A History of Popular Music in Seven Genres. This is where it gets personal. So when you, re when you review, you know, I have a lot swirling in my head this week. And it's because uh, I've been, as usual, you know, making changes and upgrades and researching and doing things that globally uh, end up affecting the podcast. And I, as part of that, reviewed other music podcasters. Uh, review meaning just kind of took a look at them and, and absorbed them and got an idea of what they do. Five other podcasters on YouTube in particular. And uh, was impressed, you know, what I, what I like about what everyone is doing, including here at Music Is Not A Genre, is that we're all doing something different. What struck me was that on the whole, with a couple exceptions, those other podcasters are coming at it from, I'll say, the standpoint of a music lover, or a music uh, listener, uh, fan, and that's great. And this, it's going to bear on what I'm talking about with this book here. This is why I'm bringing this up. None of them are what I would call music insiders, meaning they haven't made a living at music, or creating music constantly. You know, my, my entire you know, creative life is informed by the music that I have done since I was a child. And a lot of what I do is and has been in the music industry. And I think that's what differentiates this podcast from other podcasts is that I am coming at it from an insider perspective and it changes how you talk about things. It changes how you talk about music. It changes how you talk about music criticism. It changes how you discuss and what you focus on. 
Not to mention there are decisions I make as to how I talk and what I bring into the conversation that are just a personal, you know, preference. And this is where it gets personal, just like the title said here. And that's because I, you may not know this, because I tend to be pretty uh, even-tempered when I'm doing these podcasts, but I'm a very emotional person. I get easily affected by pretty much everything very sensitive. And especially when it comes to discussing something that I love, especially that if it's something I dislike and you like it, okay, there's a difference of opinion there, but it doesn't strike me as much. If, if there is a type of music or a band or a song that I love and I, and I find that someone else doesn't like it, it used to be that that it would, it would trigger me. And I know that's a word that is used often, but it would get to me to a point where I didn't know how to relate to that person. And, you know, you grow and and, and age and experience and all that stuff. And you learn that if you take a breath and try to understand from that person's perspective and what they're getting and and the fact that it's really no insult or or threat to you that someone has a difference of opinion, then you're listening more and you're exploring and understanding more. And that's, I think, what we're trying to get at here. And so I have learned to temper my initial emotional reactions with uh, that desire to want to connect and understand. Uh, Another thing I find that is different about this podcast, and, you know, that's all I'll say. And that works especially well when you're confronted by a person of equal passion whose opinions may differ from yours. Uh, like Kela Fasane, and I hope I've pronounced that correctly. I believe uh, I got it, the pronunciation from him, uh, a video that he did. So fingers crossed that one's right. Uh, this is an absolutely passionate person. His passion for music and, and music criticism and the writing of it, the discussing of it is palpable. It's everywhere. It's in every word. It's on every page of this book in particular. And if you've read any of his other reviews or seen any of his videos, you will notice the same thing. This is someone who is absolutely in love with music and he is experienced and, and informed and he has a lot of strong opinions. And uh, those opinions do not necessarily jibe with mine, in, you know, in every case. I will say this about this book. I was surprised how often I agreed And I'll go through the reasons later on as to why that happened. But starting out with the book, I was predisposed to skepticism because a good friend of mine who is also an excellent writer and critic, uh, critic of music, and he's he's actually creating his own music now, uh, Steve Erickson, he mentioned to me uh, from the the outset, he had read the book months before I did, and he wanted my take on it. So, Steve, if you're watching or listening, you know, this is my take, uh, that uh, Califasane, uh defends genre boundaries. And so immediately, you know, coming from, you know, the creator of music is not a genre, you can imagine that that pushed some buttons before I even picked up the book. But the book was too fascinating and, you know, 
I read good reviews and even Steve himself enjoyed the book for me to pass up. So I knew it was inevitable that I would get it, I would read it. And like I said, it was, it was a close call, but overall I really enjoyed it. And let me be very clear, and the, the reason why it was a close call was not because it is in any way uh, you know, a bad book. And, and let me be even clearer in that I don't do traditional reviews. I, I don't, uh, I am not a critic and that is by choice. It doesn't mean in my personal life, I don't, you know, it's like I said, I'm an emotional person and you say things and feel things, but that when you're trying to communicate and trying to really get at the understanding of something, and especially in this uh, venue where I'm connecting with you and, and an audience where I want that kind of discussion to happen, this is never about me declaiming this music sucks or this music is amazing or this music is objectively good or bad or this book is objectively good or bad. I will tell you a million times that if I voice an opinion, that it is an opinion and it might be informed, it might be you know educated, it might be from a lot of experience, just like the author here, but I will in no way claim to be an expert or the final word other than in a few cases, and uh, you've heard me say those things, and I will probably say them again. And so that all of that kind of floating around in my head when I started to read this book made it a little tough for me to get into it at first because I was fighting with myself. And that's never a good place to come from. This, this kind of predisposition to skepticism is a prejudgment, which is prejudice. So I had a prejudice against this book before I read it. And I had to do my best to clear that out and take the book at face value in order to really understand it and appreciate it for what it is. And I was able to do that eventually. And I think it was in part because of the author's passion and how relentless he is at digging into every corner and in his own way connecting things and especially connecting things to himself. And I believe other uh, reviewers have said this. Uh, my friend Steve has said this. And it, this is one thing that really struck me when I read it. And that is the book came alive the most when he was being personal, when he tied the music and his experience of the music to his own life and to his personal story and, 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 you know, upbringing and all of that. It's not to say that his history wasn't, uh, also very on, although when he, when he kind of weighed in and gave his opinion, there were, there were times where, uh, that, you know, there were times where that opinion was like, oh, wow, I never thought of it that way. And it kind of gave a new perspective on things. And there were other times where I'm like, no, that just, I just, no, that comes from a certain perspective that is his, that is not necessarily shared, you know, by everyone or by, or by me. And again, what saved that is the fact that it's such a personal book and a personally affecting book. Uh, and, you know, he claims, and I believe you know, that he's right about this, that he is, in a sense, an outsider. And it's both because he professes that he doesn't really have much musical ability, although he was in a band once, 
and so doesn't consider himself a, a mus- musical insider in that sense. And also his race and where he and his family come from and kind of coming into the culture in that way, although he, you know, grew up here and, and all of that as an, an American, but that his that will naturally change your perspective of things. And because of that, and because it was so clear about that, it was easier for me to uh, understand why we might disagree on certain things. And some of those things I'm going to get into later, as a matter of fact. Uh, so let's, let me state here, as I mentioned it before, why, even though in some ways this was a close call for me, and this is how this goes, right? I read a lot of music books. I actually have read more music books recently than I have pretty much ever. And the majority of them are nonfiction and the majority of them are history in some way of something. Uh, Not all of them, but but in the most cases. And other books with one exception, which I hope to get to this season, which is that uh, history of progressive rock that I keep mentioning. That's the exception. But all the other books tend to be like textbooks in a sense. They're, but they're engaging and they're written by people who have experienced this music and are informed in, in whatever histories they have. Uh, Last Night a DJ Saved My Life is a perfect example. And that's a book that I'll bring up again a little bit later. This book, the reason why it was a little bit of a gray area is because it presents itself as a history. It has a lot of history. And because I read other books on some of the subjects in this book, maybe I overlooked some of the history that he gave because I kind of was familiar with it already. But that is to say that if you want kind of an overview of these uh, genres, the seven genres, which I'll mention later, you uh, wouldn't, you know, wouldn't hurt you to pick up this book with the caveat that not every observation that he makes is one that is necessarily what you what you would consider accepted wisdom or or the the way other historians see music does again doesn't take away from the quality of the book that said there were three things about this book that saved it for me that really saved it and the first one and I keep saying this he knows his stuff whether it's through his own personal experience particularly in the section about punk, which I think was the most vibrant and and best section of the book, or his uh, professional experience as someone who went out as a job and listened to music, whether it was, you know, at a record store or live and wrote about it and all of that and and continues to do that. You can tell that he knows his stuff. I want to, I keep wanting to say inside and out, but again, he really is kind of an outsider to this in the way that most critics are, you know, and that's the word I keep using that word on purpose. And I think I mentioned this recently in another podcast, but there's a difference between criticism and critique in my mind. And this might just be the way I define them. But to me, a critic is somebody who pulls things apart in a way that kind of takes them down and with with no other uh, global objective than to weigh in as an expert. And someone who gives a critique 
kind of comes at it in a sense, even if it's not from the inside, from their experience, but tries to get inside the material and appreciate it for what it is. It may still have some issues with it, but, you know, respects it, I guess is, is, you know, and I'm going to be doing another uh, episode, uh, possibly this season, an opinion episode on something that he brought up in this book, which has to do with the idea of negative reviews being a bad thing all of a sudden. And I'm of two minds about that. And I'll expand a lot on this in the, in that future episode, but just to quickly go over that. Yes, you should never go into uh, reviewing if you're a reviewer already the deciding you love or hate something or only review things that you are predisposed to like or even worse always try to write uh, a positive review even if it's something you know that that doesn't strike you that way now i'm not sure where he or you know, other people get the idea that negative reviews are frowned upon because I've seen a ton of them. I mean a ton. I don't necessarily think that they are frowned upon. I think that promoters and certain, the, you know, the PR are going to push the positive forward first, but that doesn't mean that there aren't reviewers out there giving negative reviews. And the second point about this is that I tend to be turned off by reviewers whose sole purpose is to trash something. You know, I'll give an example. I will probably never, I'm not a reviewer, but if I were a reviewer, I will never write a review of a mainstream country music album because I'm sure much of that music is really super well done and it's very respected and there's some great singer-songwriters, performers and the whole thing you know, and that whole Nashville crew who does most of the music. Uh, but it's not my kind of music. So it would be my inclination to see the flaws before I see the good things about it. And that's not fair. And if you're a reviewer and what you're doing is you're jumping in almost, I think, intentionally to pull flaws out of things and to just take it apart then that's a, that to me is a power play. That to me is a kind of a play of superiority. Like I know better than the people who created this. And I think that's the difference between also an outsider and an insider, which is to say that if I were uh, uh, asked to play bass on a, on a Nashville session or was sitting in on one or, you know, uh, heard an interview with the, an artist about their music, there's a chance I'm going to feel it a lot more because I come at it from the inside than someone who hasn't had experiences like that. So that's my tangent there. So the second thing that saved this book for me was that he, you know, he's a guy who's close to my age, a few years younger. So he's been around a while and he's very honest about the fact that he has often made uh, what ended up being very incorrect assessments of music. So he's honest about uh, how wrong his opinions have been. Perfect example, 
when Beyonce released her first album. Ashanti also released an album. And he went on record as saying that Ashanti's was superior and that, uh, you know, she would go on to big things and be super popular. Uh, we all know how, you know, which one of those artists has been favored historically since then. And uh, I think rightfully so. And he's very honest about the fact that he missed that, you know. And he's also honest about his own personal bias and vantage point. And so even though there are times where I disagree, I don't see it his way, I, I think that maybe some of the angles he's taking on certain things uh, don't really ring true when he talks about how he comes at it from his own perspective and his experience, it mitigates that. And, and that to me is a sign of an evolved you know, artist. Uh, and a, a great example uh, is how he wrote how bands have a right to defy critical consensus. That's my paraphrase. But uh, Grand Funk Railroad was his example. And he wrote about how they were trashed left and right in the 70s, but were one of the most successful rock bands of the 70s. Now, I will confess that I've probably heard several of their songs and wouldn't be able to name one of them. And that doesn't make it good or bad music. There were those songs I remember being good. I don't think that they were by any means the best band of the 70s, but they, but at the time, like he said, they were more successful than almost any, I think maybe almost any other rock band when they were at their height of popularity. And so no matter what the critics say, which can be a good and bad thing, on the one hand, right, critics know what they know, and and the only critics I respect are the ones who, who are honest about the fact that they don't know shit, because I say that all the time. I, you know, I know what I know, but ultimately, I what do I really know, you know? And, uh, you know, at the same time, when you agree with a critic, you agree, you know? And, and so I think historically, we might want to uh, you know, paint with a different brush or hindsight and all of that. And when it comes to a band like Grand Funk Railroad, when you are dealing with bands that were not as mainstream popular as you might think in the 70s, like Led Zeppelin and such, we see historically in how the type of music they made, you know, what was it doing to change the conversation of music, et cetera, et cetera, or how do the songs hold up? And you might look back and say, well, Led Zeppelin was just a far superior band. And in some ways they were. And, and I'm sure there are people who will say in some ways Grand Funk Railroad was. The third thing that saved this book for me, and this is where it gets personal again, is that, like I mentioned, he's pretty close to my generation. He's only a few years younger, so he's a Gen Xer. And so he has some similar touchstones and perspectives about certain things Uh when it came, especially, I think hip hop was my second favorite section in this book. And um, I think that because of that, it was as though I was reading a book from a friend from high school, even though, uh, you know, as many years apart as we are, we wouldn't have attended high school at the same time, but it's close enough uh, as time goes on. And that we'd be having a discussion and I'd find out that I really like this person, but I just, our tastes are just 
quite different. We might agree on a few things, like a lot of what he said about, uh, some of what he said about punk, I'll say, and some of what he said about hip hop. But then we'll tend to disagree on uh, quite a few other things. But it was cool to kind of feel that generational kinship, I guess is what I'm saying. A perfect example of a disagreement that comes from his, uh, I think his, like he said, his personal bias. Uh, uh, My friend pointed out that he said that he found uh, that the author said that he found something appealing and even exotic about the whiteness he saw in both punk and country. Now, there would be nothing exotic about that for me or other white people, right? Because that the definition, you know, of something like that exotic or different is not it's not you. But because Califasana comes from a different background. It's understandable that there was this sort of club feel to those types of music in particular. And you could argue in, in many eras of rock, even though historically that's it's, it's incorrect, uh, even though historically uh, country, you know, is incorrectly assumed to be an invention of white people uh, when it wasn't. But you can see how you can make that distinction and say, oh, okay, these, you know, these are predominantly white. And yeah, there were bands like Bad Brains in in the punk world, Charlie Pride in the country music world, and so many others in both cases. But yes, those uh, genres in their prime and since, well, maybe not now, but, but in their prime, especially and for decades, were overwhelmingly white. I... I can sort of understand why he'd find that appealing. And it's an interesting perspective, but it almost to me seems like, um, you know, a a challenge or kind of a, like a, I'm going to say something controversial. And he did kind of, you know, unravel it a little bit and explain it more. But that could also be because I'm responding kind of, you know, I'm, again, I'm triggered by that because, Hey, in many cases, in the fact that those are, you know, largely white in terms of what's popular, especially is right. It doesn't, again, it doesn't mean that all the artists were or, or, or are white, but that's how they're perceived. And that in their own ways, they were very divisive. There were certain strains of punk and there's many strains of punk, but there were certain ones that were very exclusive that even dismissed other forms of punk. And those form, those, those groups also dismissed, you know, quite probably people of a different color or background. And in country music, you know, try as it might, and it's trying really hard now, it, it's, having, it's, it's had a, an understandably hard time shaking off the mantle of being racist. And that's not to say by any means that most country music is racist or art or the artists are, but it is often very aggressively marketed to white people. And a lot of the lyrics and experiences trend in that direction. And that is changing. And that has been, there have been differences throughout history, but it's changing even more so now. But there's an example of where I couldn't really understand his perspective, but you could kind of see why. And to this to kind of, you know, 
pop one more you know note into the book on the, on the whole and i think other people have said this i wish it was just a memoir i wish it was a memoir of my life in seven genres and that kind of a thing because even though the history was interesting and he absolutely has the authority and experience to write it those personal elements and then maybe he'll write another book where you can get even more personal about this stuff. We're, at, we're just so affecting that you wanted to know more. In every case, in, a, in any of the genres, yes, especially punk and secondly hip-hop, but really even when you say things like that about country music, you're like, tell me more about you. You know, don't, 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 don't try to interpret country music history right now. That doesn't seem to be where the real strength of the book is. Just tell me more about you and your relationship with the music. That's what really got me with this. So just to kind of quickly go over the structure of the book, other than an intro, and I think there was a, an ender there, but the seven genres in order that are name-checked in the title, rock, R&B, country, punk, hip-hop, dance, and pop. And I've mentioned punk, you know, strongest, hip-hop second, which it felt like punk to him in some ways. And I think that it's been said about hip hop that that is, you know, it was sort of the punk R&B or punk disco of it, of its time. And you can see why. Uh, the dance, I recently read that book last night at DJ Save My Life. So a lot of what he went over was something that I had read before. But I think if this is your first exposure to that history, it's, a, it's, it's damn good. Uh, rock and R&B and country, uh, you know, a lot of, let's say, interesting facts that popped up that I didn't know, like that fact about Grand Funk Railroad being so successful, but overall uh, didn't necessarily, you know, uh, I didn't have a lot of takeaways that, that I guess stuck with me. Pop, my favorite thing about the pop uh, section is that he pointed out that pop as a genre, meaning as produced in, in, in an exclusive way, in a way to be its own thing, didn't actually really emerge until the early 80s and took over the airwaves. And it was in large part because of the second British invasion with all the new romantic new wave bands. And I think he name-checked Culture Club. And there were many bands who... This was their sort of, punk was a rebellion, and this was their rebellion from punk and from rock in general to say that it wasn't, it was not just okay to be pop, it was cool to be pop. And that was not necessarily the conventional wisdom. It wasn't for, I think, maybe until really the 90s. It took a while for it to really sink in. But, but during the 80s and certainly prior, in music circles, if you were called pop, that was kind of looked down upon. And as you know, as I've said before, there's, there's you know excellent quality, good, awful, all kinds of music in every single type, music, every single genre. But the fact that he is pointing out that pop sort of rose and said it deserves respect. And it was all of a sudden being created by these auteurs like Boy George and all of them, uh, you know, that has continued to such a degree to this day 
that when I think of like, oh, God, it was almost 10 years ago. And I'm like, um, somebody that I used to know by Gautier was, is like, you know, indie, indie pop is now its own genre. And indie pop is all of a sudden with people like Mitski becoming like just pop pop. And, and, and yet, and you can hear it in my voice as I start to talk about this, but I do want to, one last thing about that is I love the fact that, you know, he shows that pop should be respected like any other, you know, type, because as you know, I agree with that since most of what I do is some version of that. Uh, but it does get to the larger point which is the idea of genres. And it was a good enough book that I just was not upset by the fact that he was very adamant about how much he loves genres and how sort of upset he gets at people who disparage them. And, the, and his passion and his joy in defining genres and in embracing genre boundaries as if to say, well, here's a set of rules. Apply those rules to your music and get them as best you can and really create the perfect representation of that genre. I understand that because there's a place for that. There, there is absolutely a place for that. But I think it's a very, very, very small percentage of music that can be classified into one single genre. I think a very small percentage. And he understands that. The author understands that there's fluidity in genres. And, you know, I guess the part that I kind of disagree with it is that he, he seems so uh, enamored of genre boundaries and genre restrictions. And that could be partly from an outsider perspective, although I'm sure there are many musicians, but most musicians will tell you that they, if they're going to confine to be confined, it's because they're confining themselves. They don't want anybody to tell them, uh, well, you're doing, you know, X kind of music, like R&B music, so it can't have a distorted guitar, or you're doing rock music, so it can't have electronic drums, or whatever it is that has traditionally been thought to not be a part of that genre. Musicians will tell you, no, it's actually not fun. And even though I have a load fun time, Going into subcategories and subclassifications of, you know, there's, there's punk, but there's post-punk, but then there's emo, but then there's screamo. And then how far down the chain can you get? There's probably divisions of screamo that I don't even know about. You know, that's kind of cool and kind of fun. But ultimately, it, it disproves its own rule, which is to say that you could divide every single song almost into a separate genre. So what's the point, you know, of having them in the first place? And yes, they do what they're supposed to do, which is to give us an in to what we might encounter. To give, it sets expectations, but they do a lot more. They segregate, they shut out a ton of people by virtue of their name. He had a problem with alt country because it's like, why does it have to be alt? And, you know, it was trying to be, I guess, in a sense, more clever than country. I, of course, disagree with that because I'm not a fan of mainstream country. Uh, but there's a lot of alt country that, you know, I don't listen to either but the but the point is why should you disparage that you know why shouldn't there be a place for saying well country says you can only do x y and z i'm going to add you know q p and w into that too and it's going to be totally awesome and so what you know and uh you know that is kind of where i land 
with the idea of that. So ultimately, I guess, as fun as it was to go through all of this, I, I kind of disagree with the premise. <laughs> and I'm happy to say that I believe that we are looking, and I see this book as a summation of what I'll call the hyper-genre divided era of music, which I think has been slowly eroding, and we're seeing it in its death throes, largely because of the internet and, and, and the you know people saying, well, I like this music, but I also like this music, and I like this, and I don't even know what it is. And I think that the fact that this sort of serves as a, this is what music was like, almost, makes it very valuable to me because I would, I would love to think that in 10 years, somebody's going to read this and say, wow, that was a shitload of segregation, you know, or however they, however you want to, you know, phrase that. As far as, you know, music of mine, I mean, I'm, I'm reviewing a book, you know, so, (laughs) you know, it was my first thought, I would love to say, here's a song that I recorded that incorporates all seven of these genres that are named in this book. And as a matter of fact, in my upcoming album, there is one song that will probably have, if not all of them, the most of them, because that's how I hear it. It's, you know, it's somewhat of a challenge to myself, but it's mostly because that's how this song is supposed to be unfolding. And it may take a turn and go completely different because... You know, I don't want to prejudge it and, and uh, predetermine it, I should say. But that song doesn't exist yet. So instead, uh, I'm going to share with you links to two things. One is my Band Rex album, The Sunshine Seminar, because my last project was a variation of five albums with different, you know, genres and types of music and somewhat classified. The Sunshine Seminar, I think, is more uh, singularly representative of what Rec does because it is an album that incorporates almost everything that I do in any, you know, genre or subgenre. And I, in fact, defy you and challenge you and challenge Kela uh, Fasane to classify the album. Say, what kind of music is that other than indie? Because that's pretty broad. Uh, and so that's what I'm throwing up here as a representation. And because I don't want to play the entire album at the end of this podcast, but I do want a song to be featured as always, I'm going to feature the final song on the album. It's called, uh, brave the world. And this is in honor of this wonderful author because punk music was his professed favorite music for many, many years, if not still, and brave the world is one of my entries into the punk world, and I think you will get that immediately when you start listening to it. Uh, and very shortly, as soon as I'm done talking here, which is soon. So, have you read this book? Uh, and if so, what did you think of it? Uh, do you know any of the author's other works? I'd love to know that. What's your take on the author in general? What are your feelings about genres past, genres present, and, and the future of genres? How do you relate to music criticism? I haven't had enough discussion about this. I'd love to hear more from people about how they feel. Because don't just accept something that's written, you know. Critique it yourself. What do you agree with? What do you disagree with? It's not, it's not God's word. It's just somebody opining on something. I want to know that and anything else you're thinking. Because as always, my objectives here are music, conversation, and connection. Thank you for listening and watching. And I will talk to you next week.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.